All right. Why don't you open up to Zephaniah chapter 2, please. Zephaniah chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And the message is entitled, A Call to Repentance. The prophet Zephaniah has proclaimed the coming judgment under the day of the Lord, which has a twofold fulfillment, as we've seen clearly already. The short-term judgment of Judah in the hands of Babylon. The long-term judgment of the world under the power of the Antichrist or the tribulation and great tribulations that Christ comes back in the second coming. Now, Zephaniah has already declared the judgment of Judah for, uh, to be certain because of her sins in chapter 1, verse 4 through 6. In 4, for the worship of Baal. In 5, for the worship of the stars and the planets of Zodiac. In 5, also for syncretizing the worship of Yahweh with Molech. And then for the people turning away from Yahweh uh, who were living as if God did not exist. It's amazing. Yet, having declared the absolute certain judgment that was to start in about 15 years and ending in 35 years at the third and the last siege of Jerusalem, Yahweh still offered the opportunity for those who would repent at the hearing of the message of judgment. And that would be the remnant. In spite of all this, God is so patient, God is so loving, that he still offers repentance to those who he keeps sending the warning to. God's nature is love, and due to his love, he must judge sin or forgive sin. But it's always by his provision, for he cannot tolerate or compromise with sin, as we've seen through Habakkuk very clearly. Therefore, if there is to be any type of relationship with God, it must come through repentance to be reconciled to God, the greatest act of God's love. Because none of us deserve forgiveness. None of us deserve heaven. When you compare yourself to the epitome of a holy God, there's nothing else to say. You just have to cast yourself upon his mercies. In fact, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about in the Minor Prophets is pretty gloom and doom kind of stuff. <laughs> but all of this is pointing to the future day when God is going to bless Israel. In fact, in the third chapter, you have the restoration of Israel. And this is what he says to her in that day for the Millennial Kingdom in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. He says, in that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion, lest let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is what God is moving towards. The restoration of the kingdom. When you look at the world today, this is not what God intended. This is what the result of man's rebellion against God. And people don't even believe in God and say they don't believe in God, but they still blame God. Well, if there's a God, why did he, you know. You can't have it both ways. Either God created it and is responsible or he's not. Which is it? And so, the call to repentance by Zephaniah is given to us here. Let me read here verse 1 through 3. And it's characterized by three things. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Before the decree is issued or the day passes like shaft. Before the day the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek 
righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So the call to repentance by Zephaniah is characterized by the following three things. First, you have the invitation for repentance in verse 1. Second, you have the urgency of repentance in verse 2. And thirdly, the benefit of repentance in verse 3. The invitation for repentance comes first. Notice verse 1, the prophet Zephaniah declared the proclamation of repentance and for repentance. Listen to the words, gather yourselves together, yes, gather together. This phrase is in view of turning from sin and returning back to seek God. This is the context, is repentance. This was not a call to simply gather together and hear God's word as other times or to be instructed for godly living. This was a call to gather to repent for their sinful state, a change of mind, if you will, to turn around the word metanoia in the New Testament, the Greek word, but the Old Testament has the same concept, okay? In other words, you see yourself as going in the wrong direction. It's like you're trying to get on an on-ramp, and here you go. You think you're going the right way, and all of a sudden you, you pass a, a, an arrow that's pointing towards you. You know what happens. You just get some cold sweats. You are freaked out. Because you realize there could be somebody coming head on to you, right? Now, if you're loaded or drunk or whatever, you say, yeah, somebody put a wrong sign there. You know, you keep going, right? Various forms of the word repent appear through the Bible. Repent 32 times, repentance 24 times, repented seven times. And there are more number of words that imply and phrases repent apart from the word directly repent. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the bridge to be one with God. It won't happen. You will not be one with God without repentance. Impossible. Notice the phrase is stated twice, being emphatic due to the nature of their corrupt condition and sin. Due to the coming judgment, the, last, the day of the Lord. There's a specific period of time as we've seen. Due to the gracious offer of God that is limited to a short time. God is saying, listen, time is short. In fact, the root word of the phrase gathered together uh, means stubble. What a very picturesque picture of their sinful condition here. As stubble that is fit for the fire of judgment. It's found in Psalm 83.13, Isaiah 5.24, Isaiah 40.24, and many, many others. The next verse uses the imagery of the shaft driven by the wind that would beat the wheat. High on a hill, throw it up, and the wind would blow away the shaft. That which is no good. This is the offer of God out of his love and grace for his people. If you're going to start the doctrine of grace, you can't start in the New Testament. You have to go back to the Old Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace begins in the Old Testament. Now notice the proclamation is an invitation, but quite different. For it is an imperative command. In fact, both are imperative commands to gather for the purpose of repenting. The imperative command here, directed by God, do not force a sinner to repent nor thwarts the free will 
of the sinner. This baffles many people because they want to go to one extreme or the other. Somehow they want to declare that God predestined them and then they go to the other extreme denying the complete free will of man. And yet God teaches both. The bottom line is, is that you are the deciding vote whether you go to heaven or hell. God says you, he wants you in heaven. Satan says he wants you in hell. Where do you want to go? You're the deciding vote. Wow. The imperative command only states what they should do to repent. Wouldn't it be great if you gave a command to your son or daughter and it would automatically obey? That'd be great, wouldn't it? Boy, it would just clear so many problems. But they're not robots. The imperative command is one of truth as to what is best for them, but it's not forced upon them. If you could forge your son or daughter to do anything you wanted to, how would you know they loved you? How would you know they respected and honored you? You wouldn't. So the lessons from the lesser to the greater. If the lesser can't do that and won't do that, are we going to blame God of doing that? Of course not. Notice the prophet Zephaniah declared the spiritual condition of the nation um, called to repent. Oh, undesirable nation. The nation had been birthed by God, as you know. The word of God came to Abraham and says, I will make a great nation of you in Genesis 12.1. God would do that. The patriarchs of the nation were three. Exodus 2.24 says, So God heard the groanings and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. The nation held a high privilege. That's why Deuteronomy 4 through 7 says the following. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord Yahweh our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which set before you this day? What, what nation has God called to do what he's called us to do? What nation did God choose and that... What, what nation did he give his word to? None. Only one. Israel. None. They're all rhetorical questions with obvious answers. Notice the nation of Judah had turned away from God. The nation had turned to the worship of Baal and Moloch, the worship of the Zodiac in, in heaven, as we saw in chapter 1, 4 through 5. Many of the, the men of the nation had become satisfied in their uh, sinful state of complacency, um, tainted by their corrupt lifestyle in chapter 2, verse 12. Sort of the idea there is uh, the imagery of winemaking, where you pour the wine from vessel to vessel, and each time you pour, you're taking out more sediment, more dredge, so that the wine becomes better and more refined and more pure, and it doesn't taste of itself. Well, these men had, had settled in their leaves of corruption. They just were indifferent to it. In fact, their words are recorded for us in one twelve. At the end there, it says the philosophy of many of these men in the nation was the following. Who say in their heart, not in their brain, but in their heart, the Lord Yahweh will not do good, nor will he do evil. Whoa! Is that today's philosophy? So you really believe there's a God that's going to judge all of us? Yep. 
So you believe that he's going to judge nations? Yep. So you believe he's literally going to come back to the earth? Yep. These men say, hey, God doesn't care how you live. Hey, come see, come saw, whatever. Do whatever you want. I mean, it's all good. Really. Philosophy of today, ladies and gentlemen. Listen to me. In the church. Not the world. He's talking to his people. This is the philosophy of today in the church with the emergent church. Very, very dangerous. Undesirable. The nations described by God as no longer being appealing to him. No longer yearning after her. There was no attractiveness about her sinful and corrupt state from the perspective of God's holiness. There was only a shameful sight of her whoredoms and her unfaithful adulteries by her deeds against God. It's a repulsive thing to a husband or a wife. Let's give God a break. Israel's the wife of God. That's why she's been put away, given a certificate of divorce. Sephaniah's contemporary Jeremiah says the following, Jeremiah 2, 1 through 3. Listen carefully. Moreover, the word of the Lord, Yahweh, came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord Yahweh, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothed, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord Yahweh, the first fruit of his increase. All that devoured him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord Yahweh. What happened? You used to be in love with me. You used to just seek me and run after me. We spent time together. What a parallel to marriages. That's why Paul puts our relationship in marriage to Jesus with husband and wife in Ephesians. It's a parallel, double teaching. Found nowhere else in Scripture, in the New Testament there. Now notice the city of Jerusalem is condemned as part of the nation of Judah fits her guilt and shame. It's for her guilt and shame. Look at chapter 3 there, verse 1 and 2. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city, verse 1. Verse 2, she has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord Yahweh. She has not drawn near to her God. These are indictments. These are not false accusations. Now, today, the whole world, even the church is saying, well, I don't judge. When people want to talk to somebody, you ask them, well, now, I'm not judging you. You better make some judgments. When you get out of here, you're going to drive home. Red is red. Don't go for the lie of the world. The new green is brown. Well, the new green and the, the stoplight is not red. All right? And if you do, you're not going to get home. Simple. Listen to Jeremiah again, the contemporary. Chapter 2, 11 through 13. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory. In other words, that if pagans haven't changed their gods, but Israel changed the true God. But my people have uh, changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. 
Be very desolate, says the Lord Yahweh, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out for themselves sisters, broken sisters, that can hold no water. What a vivid imagery. In those days, as you know, very arid over there, very little rain. So they would carve out of the mountain or the rocks or some um, mountain place or rock place, and, and they would spend many months and years sometimes and then they would find out in the first rains as it filled up whether there was no crack in it or not, right? And if they came back after a week or a month and it's all gone, they realized they wasted all their time. My people have changed me. Living water, fresh, running streams for the stagnant, stinking, polyguag water. Wow. I think of many who um, were saved during the Jesus People Movement through Pastor Chuck Smith's ministry. And they have gone back into the world and corrupted themselves worse than they were before they came. It's always a decision people make, ladies and gentlemen. Whether you continue to abide in Christ or not. I'm always amazed that people ask me, so you believe you can walk away. Well, who would you sit under? Did you sit under Pastor Chuck Smith? He certainly thought that. What happened? Why is everybody changing? Why is everybody a neo-Calvinist today? Wow. You can't miss it when you read and you hear Chuck from Genesis to Revelation. It's impossible. Judah and Jerusalem are a tragic picture of those who have turned their backs on God and returned to the world, being unrepentant. Some seduced by so-called higher education, the Trojan horse to America. Others by fame that is fleeting, even many top Christian pastors. Fame leads to flames, if God hasn't put you there. Still others by pleasure that is unquenchable. You go from one thing to another, you're never satisfied. Nothing new under the sun. Like chasing the wind, Solomon says. Says right through your fingers. Romans eleven twenty two. Listen carefully. This is Paul, a theologian, the apostle speaking. Listen carefully. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity. Talking about the Jews, the Jewish nation. But towards you, Gentiles. Goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Do you need interpretation? you need me to get into the Greek? It's very, very clear what it says, right? He's contrasting Israel, who was cut off, and now the church, Jew and Gentile, which is one. Don't boast against her, because what happened to her could happen to you if you don't continue. Do you need Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek for that? You don't need anything. It's real simple. You just have to use your brain. God judges nations the same way he judges individual people. According to the measure of light they have received. Nineveh repented according to the light that was given by Jonah, even though Jonah didn't want them to have the light. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar was dealt with severely because God had revealed to him the time of the Gentiles. And he became as an animal for seven seasons. And when he came to his uh, um, sanity, um, he said... All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the armies of heaven and earth. No one can restrain his hand and say to him, What have you done? Daniel 4.35. 
Yet God didn't force Nebuchadnezzar to do anything. Gave him choice, right? The nation of Nineveh got saved on a maybe, but returned back to her sin 100 years later. So in 612 B.C., God destroyed her through Babylon and the Scythians. Wow. God will judge the nations as his first order of business for their treatment of the Jew. You find this in Matthew 25, 31 through 36. Never separate Matthew's gospel, 24 and 25. They go together. They're like Twinkies, like uh, tortillas and beans, peanut butter and jam. <clears throat> 24, tribulation, great tribulation. It takes you through it completely. At the end of 24, Jesus come back. The context is second coming, not the rapture. The five foolish virgins and wise virgins, they're the people that are waiting for the Lord's second coming. You begin there at the beginning of 25. He rewards those who were faithful. Then he moves to the judgment of the nations, the sheep from the goat. Context, context, context. Okay? It's real simple. God calls all sinners to repent from their sins. The invitation is found in John's gospel, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but everlasting life. Is that the only verse you know? You've got the Bible. You need nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. God's invitation and guarantee. The condition of every sinner is the same. Dead and trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. The manner by which all sinners are saved is the same also. By grace through faith and not of ourselves. The gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Thus anyone should boast. Wow. The invitation for repentance was not deserved. Yet God offers it. You see, we can understand why God saved us, but we can understand why he would save others. <laughs> That's how we are. We're bad news. I can see why God forgives my sin, but yours? I don't know. <laughs> I, I just don't know. Me and God have to talk about it. Next comes the urgency of repentance, verse 2. Notice the prophet Zephaniah warned about the shortness of time regarding the judgment before the decree is issued or the day passes like shaft. The use of the word before is three times here. It's no coincidence or accident. Zephaniah, by using the word before three times, is giving emphasis the importance of the time left. You as a parent are trying to get out of your home. You've got an appointment to meet. You know there's traffic on the freeway. And you just heard that there's an accident also. And you're telling your kid, come on, we got to go. <clears throat> go. <clears throat> Before it's too late. We'll never make it. Urgency. This would be a time of escape for those who repented. We would call this a window time. Once it's gone, it's gone. It'll never come back. As I look back upon my life after 40 years of ministry, um, I see some window times that if I, if I had not walked through them, they would have never come again. Completely lost. Zephaniah notices very simply communicating that the time was very, very near. If this is the time of reform of Josiah, so we get a little reference here. 
say 621 B.C. And some believe it's there. It could be earlier. But let's just take that. To give you an idea how fast and how short 15 years would be from 21 to 606, the first siege, 15 years. It's been 15 years since we were hit by the terrorists at the Twin Towers. 15 years. How short and how fast. That's not much time. This first warning, notice, emphasizes what God um, had declared he was going to do to Judah. The word decree refers to the proclamation of their destruction. It's very clear. Assyria had been used to take the northern kingdom to captivity in 722, as we've seen. Babylon would now be used to take the southern kingdom into captivity, 506, 596, 586. Three sieges, 20 years apart. The one bringing it to pass, notice, was Yahweh. And the word issued there means to bring to birth. He doesn't do this unjustly. He doesn't do this thwarting the purposes of man. He doesn't do this forcing men to do evil. He does this because he's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. He foreknows all things, every attribute to perfection, and therefore he can declare things before they happen. So when they happen, you know he's God, and he never forces any person to do any evil or any good. Everyone is on their own. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any worth for reward or judgment. Am I clear on that? Simple. This went beyond natural sowing and reaping of evil. This was the hand of God directly against them. Sometimes God will allow the natural sowing of good in you. This is not so. The day is likened to the day of harvest. Notice the words. Or the day passes like shaft, separating the wheat from the shaft. The majority of the nation was shaft. Now notice in verse 2 still, the prophet Zephaniah warned about the judgment regarding the severity now. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. The second warning emphasizes the displeasure of God with his people, Judah. The word before again, as we've noticed, speaks of a short time before the fulfillment. The word fierce indicates the heat of God's burning displeasure. Anger means nostrils or nose with the idea of breathing hard. Someone's ticked off, you know, and they're breathing hard and they're just you know, fuming. You might contemplating your mind smoke coming out of their nose or something. The burning displeasure of Yahweh, notice, was regarding the covenant Israel had made with God and Mount Sinai. It goes back to their origin. You can't cut yourself off. This is the Lord's fierce anger. The covenant God they had sworn to obey. They had turned their backs on him. They dishonored his name. They um, had violated every aspect of the covenant. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 2 through 5, the people were practicing idolatry, sacrificing their children to the burning arms of Moloch. Fertility cult. The king's children had embraced clothing fashions of the foreigners in chapter 1, verse 8. God had told them in the law, I'm going to make you different. You're not even to plow with, with a donkey and an ox, always equally yoked. 
You're to wear a certain dress. You can't mix cotton with, with wool. And he makes them a separate people. But now they're high fashion, right? Now they're more liberal, more open, more open-minded. They're so open-minded, their brains leaked out. <laughs> kind of like today. The prophets were insolent, treacherous. The priests polluted the sanctuary and did violence to the law in chapter 3, verse 4. Just three little chapters, but it's filled with all kinds of detailed information. The incriminating evidence is here in the, in the crime scene. Three chapters. Court it off. Search it. Dig around. Get on your knees. Get all the evidence. Notice the prophet Zephaniah warned about the judgment regarding the prophetic day. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Now every one of these statements might seem the same as you read it, but we're making and we're showing you the difference. Here, the third warning emphasizes the horrific day of Yahweh's anger. The day of the Lord, remember, has that twofold fulfillment. Short term for Judah's judgment through Babylon. Long term, the end of the tribulation and great tribulation under God's wrath from heaven. The day of the Lord is the central theme of Sephaniah as much as Joel. Seven times the day of the Lord is mentioned. 1, 7, 8, 10, 14, 18, 2, 2, 3, 8. That's a lot in percentage for three chapters. Notice the phrase appears in Joel as we've studied them. Obadiah and many, many of the other minor prophets as well as the New Testament, if you go there. The day of the Lord to Judah was the pouring out of Yahweh's anger upon Judah after being long-suffering with them. Now, you as a parent know that you try and you try and you try to be patient before you whack your kid. All right? And then when you whack your kid, you feel bad. Well, you may fall short in patience. God never will. And we deserve it long before he lowers the boom. There's never a question against God. Ever. The word anger here is like the previous one where it describes the word fierce, hard or burning. But here it stands alone, and the word here has the idea of patience and long-suffering of God with Judah. They were going to incur the finality of the patience of God as his anger was poured out upon them. Just? Absolutely. Deserved? Absolutely. God's at fault? Nope. For their unfaithfulness and for their evil works and deeds. Wow. Now, all these books were written to warn you and I. They're not to scare us. They're not to put us to sleep at night when we're, we can't sleep and we'll say, okay, I'll read the Bible so I can fall asleep. No. They're there to instruct us and to warn us. The urgency of repentance is demonstrated vividly by the prodigal son 
who was never born again. When you hear a pastor say, the prodigal son is like my, you know, a lot of prodigals, you know, kids from pastors, you know, sons and daughters, and they're born again, they go back in the world, but they'll come back. Listen, look at the context. The prodigal son was never born again. The father tells the other son that was lost in the house, your brother was lost, now he's found. He was dead, now alive. He was in the pig's pen. And he came to himself saying, in my father's house are more servants that eat better and have jobs. I I know what I will do. I will rise up and say, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your servants. He was never born again until he was in the pig's pen. And he came to himself. Simple. God declared he was going to judge and destroy Babylon when it was at the height of its power. Listen to Jeremiah, the contemporary of Zephaniah. So Jeremiah wrote in a book, all the evil that would come upon Babylon, all these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you arrive in Babylon and see it and read all these words, then you shall say, O Lord, and the word is Yahweh, you have spoken against this place to cut it off so that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but it shall be desolate forever. Now it shall be, when you have finished reading this book, that you shall tie a stone to it, throw it out into the Euphrates, then you shall say, Thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Chapter 51, 60 to 64. Do you understand what is happening here? Babylon is doing the three sieges. And this guy, Sariah, sent, while they're in the height of their power, to prophesy this. What do you think the soldiers, the kings, the princes, and all these mighty wars are saying when this, according to their estimation, this fool speaks? And declares the destruction of Babylon when it is the most powerful empire in the world. And then wraps this scroll with a rock and throws in Euphrates and says, That's you. You're a dead duck. They probably laughed. Mocked. But it came to pass, didn't it? Wow. God destroyed the succeeding empires that he declared, comprising the time of the Gentiles, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Just as he showed Nebuchadnezzar. Isaiah forty fifteen says, Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. That's where you get the phrase. <laughs> and are counted as the small dust of the scales. You know, people want to say they're really honest. You got a scale thing, they go, <laughs> they, they blow the dust off to show you how honest they are, right? Before they do it. Drop in the bucket, and then the dust of the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. Wow. There's nothing that can oppose God. He's the captain of the armies of heaven, the Lord of hosts. I've told you often, he's never lost a battle. He's never taken inventory to see if he can afford the war. Think of how fast our nation has been dismantled and disintegrated under the Obama administration the last eight years. The job market, the car industry, the house market, the medical insurance industry, the protection of every sort of evil done by politicians and anti-American sympathizers. 
no evil is acknowledged or repented from. Good is evil. Evil is good, as Isaiah says. I would have never thought in my lifetime as I was growing up. Before 9-11, I said, no way ever would I see the day that I'm in right now. Here I am. I'm clothed. I'm sane. I'm not crazy. I'm not a grumpy, bitter old man. It's just the facts, Jack. So you can live in the world of um, the uh, lying civilization of humanity, that the new green is brown, and that you can keep your insurance, and that global warming is what started uh, terrorism as well as a video, or you can live in reality. As people of God, hopefully you live in reality. It says, let God be true and every man a liar. Wow. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> the urgency of repentance was not to be ignored. Do you realize the urgency of the time that you and I are living under, ladies and gentlemen? Do you realize the high privilege we have such as time as this? Wow. Notice thoroughly he ends with the benefit of repentance. I love it. Verse 3. The prophet Zephaniah pleaded with Judah to turn to God. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice. The expression seek the Lord is in the context of repentance still. It's the nation he's talking to. By the acknowledgement of their sin, confessing their sin, and asking forgiveness of their sins, and by giving a tangible evidence of a changed lifestyle as evidence that they've turned from their sin. Simple. There's no other way we can know here on earth. If you tell me you're a Christian, I have to see a difference between what you were before and what you are now. Too much of the church today is saying they're changed, but they're still living the same. Pastors are drinking. Elders are drinking. You know, there's no respect and fear of God. Holiness is out the window. They're redefining the Christian, the church. It's amazing to me. Notice the meek of the earth are those who seek their own or they see their own depravity and their need of salvation. By the grace of God, they see their poverty of spirit and this, um, not deserving really any forgiveness, but yet seeing their need of forgiveness, poverty of spirit. They see the graciousness of God by his atoning provision. They take God at his word and trust him and act upon in faith. If you act upon God's revelation, that's biblical faith. If you act contrary to revelation, that's foolishness. God honors his word above his name. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. God said he covers you by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. If you worked any other way and revealed it and you trusted him, then he would honor that as faith. But the only thing he honors as faith is what he did through his son, no one else. These are the ones who upheld his justice, notice, by the repentance, being right with God and depending on God. Now notice the prophet Zephaniah exhorted those who repented to trust and look to God for the coming judgment. This is the context. Judgment is coming. It cannot be averted. But here's the window time. A very urgent time for those that want to take God's way of protection. In whatever way he 
will offer it to them. Listen carefully. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So having repented, they needed to cultivate the relationship with God. The phrase seek righteousness means to seek the things of God, the things that please God, the things that draw you closer to God and the things of God, the things that bring glory to God. The phrase deals with doing the right thing on the earth. Righteousness, godliness is vertical. Righteousness is horizontal. Where righteousness means justice, the things that were right towards fellow man, the things that benefit fellow man. Naturally and normally and sinfully, we love ourselves. We seek the best for ourselves. You know, it's like the two brothers. The older brother, mom gives him a peanut butter uh, candy and he says, share it with your brother. He takes it, he cracks it in half, he measures it once bigger, he cuts it off, he bites it, and now he makes it even, he gives it to his brother, right? That's the way it is. That's you and me. And then we walk away saying, man, I'm good. No, finish the saying, you're good for nothing. We're just bad news. Having repented, they were to walk humble. The phrase seeking humility means having a low view of self. A proper view, really. The natural man thinks more highly of himself than he ought to think. The natural man has to be number one in his own eyes. Just sit anywhere you go to a party and watch the women. By the way, women dress for women, not for men. And when that woman's sitting there and she just has a new pair of shoes and new dress on and then some woman has the nerve to walk into that party with the same shoes or the same dress, it's World War III. <laughs> Is it because she's thinking of the other woman? Of course not. The phrase deals with having a proper perspective of self due to seeing God and how much sinful Man really deserves judgment. This comes only by God's illumination, ladies and gentlemen. Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell with people of unclean lips, Isaiah 6, as he sees the Lord high and lifted up in this temple. Wow. Due to seeing God's loving mercy and grace to forgive and reconcile sinners to himself. Due to seeing the personal benefit for living life from day to day. But notice, having repented, they were to cast themselves completely on the care of God. Bad times are coming. They can't be averted. Either you go through them with God or on your own. Am I clear on this? The aversion of judgment could be for the nation if they repented, but they did not. The aversion of the judgment could be averted by individuals who repent. And they did. Some. It says it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Some were taken to Babylon in captivity. They weren't killed. Others were left in the land. Still others were preserved through captivity. Some placed in high positions as Daniel. Ezekiel's with the people. Daniel's in the palace. This text in the long term 
of the day of the Lord fits during the great tribulation as God will do the same for Israel when she flees to the wilderness in Revelation 12 and she will be hidden by God in the city of Petra, Isaiah 16.1. So the short term, the long term, through this book. I cannot illustrate this last point better than you and I. You are the greatest and I am the greatest example of the benefit of repentance being embraced. If you were not born again, where would you be right now at 10.45 and 11 seconds on Sunday morning? What would your life be like? What would your marriage be like? What would your children have turned out like if you had not been saved? I don't even want to think about it. The graciousness of God. Wow. The privilege of the church is to proclaim the gospel to the lost of the world as we see the day of the Lord approaching. The church is not preaching prophecy anymore. Not proclaiming the coming of the Lord anymore. We're trying to make people comfortable while they're going to hell. The entire human race has fallen, lost, and in need of salvation through repentance. The word repentance is a dirty word from the pulpits of America. The way God has chosen is to preach the gospel, the miracle of God. Again, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. In that chapter, he says, how will they hear if the preacher is not sent? How beautiful the feet of those who preach the gospel. The one that brings about conviction is the Holy Spirit. And brings the truth to salvation in the response of the sinner. The deciding vote. You. You want to go to heaven? You want to go to hell? It's your choice. No one will ever stand before God and say, You predestined me to go to hell, so why are you blaming me? Can't have it both ways, ladies and gentlemen. Either you're responsible for ending up in hell or heaven, or God is. If you end up in hell, it's your fault. If you end up in heaven, it's God's goodness. That's <laughs> the way it is. The end result is that a sinner becomes a saint and is absolved of everything they have ever committed against God and man. Now that... That baffles, baffles the mind of man, and that just doesn't fit right with some people. Because, of course, everybody thinks that they have the right and should be saved because they're good, and everybody else is rotten, and, you know, and that's part of their problem. Romans 1, 16 through 70 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation, uh, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. For in this the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith is the power of God for salvation. The just shall live by faith, quoting Habakkuk 2.4. Wow. Power. Power to make you whiter than snow. Power to cast your sins as far as east as the west. Power to make you a son and a daughter of God. We have no idea what that means in its full extent. But we're so glad that God does and that he is able. 
The passion of God is to save as many sinners before the day of the Lord begins. God reasons with sinners. Come, let's reason together. Though your sins be red as crimson, they'll be white as snow. Isaiah 118. He reasons with man. God seeks out sinners. The lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the climax is the prodigal son. One sinner rejoiced over one sinner. The prodigal son was a sinner. He was not backslidden. He did not walk away. He was never born again. It's the third parable. It's the climax of the three together. Simple. Pastors and Christians distort that all the time because they believe in Calvinism. So they got to fit their theology into the text. They got to twist it, right? We're going to make this sucker fit no matter what. Listen to Peter. Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Well, if God is willing with it, that means that it's going to happen. No, it doesn't. Because you make the deciding vote. He's made the provision. He gives you the invitation. Now it's up to you. You want to go to the party? Or stay home? It's your choice. You see, the responsibility of the church is to call back to repentance, those who have turned away from Jesus and for the church to be ready for the return of Jesus. Pastors are to be warning those who get ensnared back in their old lifestyle and become careless and they meddle with sin and begin to drift away from God. These are the very words of the author to the book of Hebrews. Listen carefully. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. It says, Therefore we must give a more earnest Heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Now, whether it's Paul, Peter, whoever wrote it, lest we drift away. We as Christian. We is not French here. Okay? You know how many Christian pastors teach that Hebrews is not for Christians? We. He includes himself. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Context. 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 For if the word spoken through angels... Prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience receive a just reward. How shall we escape? We escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed by those who heard him. Simple. Those that are deceived by false doctrine also. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3 says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways. Many inside the church. That's the context. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Exploit you, Christian, with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Fungus among us. The Bible is a crime scene. Look for the proper evidence. Don't misinterpret the evidence. Pastors are to be reminding the church the promise of Jesus. That we shall be saved from the wrath to come. Romans 5, 9. That God did not appoint us to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. 
that God will keep us, the church of Philadelphia, from the hour with the article, the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole earth to test those who are dwelling on the earth, earth dwellers. I'm a heavenly citizen, Revelation 3.10. Listen to the ultimate authority, Jesus Christ. In the context of this, Luke 21, 34-36, is the same context as Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13, tribulation and great tribulation. Listen carefully. Jesus says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of the life, and that they come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now the new emergent church, pastors, elders, they have beer bashes. Okay? The new Christian drinks, parties, does whatever. Because they want to show how relative they are to sinners. Really? Then why do I need to be saved? If I'm drinking, taking drugs, and fornicating, and cussing, and everything else, and by the way, pastors cuss over the pulpit, the new merchant pastors too. Get on videos, get on YouTube, listen to them. Wow. How illuminating. Watch and pray. You'd be worthy. The benefit of repentance was to be embraced. There's a benefit. Does God force you? Nope. I've done um, all kinds of weddings in 40 years. I've never seen a bride dragged up. Not one. They've all walked up on their own with a big smile. Called to repentance by Zephaniah is characterized by these three things. The invitation for repentance was undeserved. The urgency of repentance was not to be ignored. And the benefit of repentance was to be embraced. You think this might be applicable today? Oh, how applicable it is. Lord, thank you for your love and your goodness. We thank you. We worship you. We just praise you. Deal with our hearts, Lord and Father, for those on the radio and those over the internet. And that you would just call their repentance unto you, Lord. That they would call on you. And that, Lord, you would just forgive them. If you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. Maybe you're over the internet. Maybe you're listening live on the radio. Right where you sit, you can accept Christ Jesus by repenting, recognizing you're a sinner, that Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead as an affirmation of that payment. And that if you call upon him and depend upon his atoning grace and the death and resurrection in your place, he will forgive you and make you a child of God by grace through faith. This is your prayer if you want to be born again, right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.